Hey colorful people, welcome to my show Allies in Politics, where I help people of color and new citizens understand Australian politics. For today's episode, we have Anka Sahen. Anka is a migrant twice over. In 2004, he migrated from Turkey to New Zealand with his wife and then moved to Australia in 2009. Having studied political science and international relations at uni, Anka has always had an interest in politics. Since 2005, he has been working in immigration law and during that time, he has assisted thousands of individuals from more than 80 different nationalities and advised some of the most prominent corporate entities in Australia. Anka is also the first Turkish speaker in the world to have gained a formal qualification in the Maori language. Between 2010 and 2012, he successfully and single-handedly lobbied the Immigration Advisors Authority, IAA, in New Zealand to adopt a Maori name as well as institute a standard Maori term for Licensed Immigration Advisor. Due to the nature of his work and his own experience in of integrating into two different countries as a migrant himself, Anka has an intimate understanding of the practical as well as legislative obstacles faced by new migrants wanting to take part in politics in Australia. Anka, welcome to the show. Hi, Tony. How are you? Nice to meet you. Very good. Very good. Thanks. And what an impressive resume. Like, you, you are probably the first person who's not of Maori background who can actually speak in Maori that I've encountered. Can you say a few words in Maori? I'm more than happy to, but uh, let me let me point out first that uh, in New Zealand there are many uh, Maori speakers who are uh, from non-Maori backgrounds, so not necessarily just New Zealand-born, but including migrants. Mm. So it's a it's a great place. But let me say a few words. Kia ora koto, koanka ho. E no e mahiana ho ite totoko ite inga manene he tino hariko ho kite uruatu ki te ne kona ipurangi ite neira ko te reo Māori e tanga mo ngā iwi katoa o Aotearoa. Tēnā koto, tēnā koto, tēnā koto katoa. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I don't have Google Translate with me, so you've got to translate all of that. It sounded beautiful. Uh, all I said was um, that I'm. Uh, my name is Anka. I um, uh, help migrants, um, and um, I'm very happy to be doing this podcast today. And uh, I finished by saying that the Māori language is a treasure for all peoples of New Zealand. Oh, that's fantastic. Oh, that's, you know, that's a great way to start the show. So let's dive right in. Anka, I don't know about you, but I came to Australia back in like, what, 2004? Um, and it was an uphill battle to get my permanent residency in this country. Like, knowing how much harder it has become to settle in Australia now, I really, really feel for everyone on temporary visas. And those who have got visas stuck, stuck, you know, overseas, they can't get back and can't get an extension. Oh, my God, you know, I'm so glad I'm not going through what all these people are going through. What was your experience like? I have to say, um, when I got my PR back in 2005, early 2005, um, which is around the same time as you, um, 
it's um, it it was never easy, of course, um, uh, and uh, the doors were never uh, fully open to uh, to anyone who wanted to come in. But compared to how they how how things are now, um, looking back with the benefit of hindsight, I can see that. Um, uh, it was still a, a much more even playing field, if you can call it that, uh, in that for skilled migrants especially, uh, there was a much larger, much bigger list of occupations that uh, potential migrants could choose from. Uh, the point system was different, uh, somewhat easier. Uh, the English language requirements were uh, a little bit less onerous. Um, and... Um, which which basically made for a much more diverse and um, and varied uh, migration program. Whereas over time, uh, the immigration, uh, the Australian immigration has uh, chosen to focus on certain key sectors and occupations, and um, and the the profile of people coming in uh, as as skilled migrants has has become much less diverse as a result, which is um, which is not necessarily a good thing. So. Um, Going back to some of those old settings, not not fully, but uh, at, at least um, opening up the um, the list of occupations, um, the, the the going back to a broader list of occupations, so that we get a um, we get a, a a wider range of uh, people with different skills into the country would certainly be uh, very desirable. But hang on, like on the skills list, like dependent on there actually being a demand for those skills, so it doesn't make sense to open up broaden up the skill set, the skills list, if there is no demand, right? Um, look, uh, that's correct. Um, it's not, it wouldn't be a free for all. In, a, in any event, uh, we have a very robust uh, point system. So it's, it's very, very much possible to have uh, quarters for occupations that are uh, larger for certain occupations that are in more demand. And, and much, much lower for those occupations that are perhaps not, not in so much demand, but where there is an argument to bring in those skills to diversify the workforce and also to have a, um, a, a wider range of um, uh, migrants um, from with different skills in the country. Yeah. And also add to that, you know, the uncertainty, because I know that it's been really hard to get permanent residency because they keep changing the rules. Like there used to be certain visa categories that would you'd be guaranteed to 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 get permanent residency as long as you're not breaking any laws or anything. Um, but then that sort of certainty has been taken away because of the constant changes in visa categories. Um, do you have any insights into into that? Like to give you an example, like there used to be a four five seven visa, for instance, where you could come and work as a skilled migrant, and then that led, that gave you a pathway into permanent residency. Whereas that has been scrapped uh, and replaced by, they essentially split the visa category, and then you can't really, it's not straightforward anymore to get residency in this country. So what they have done uh, essentially is. Um... They've kept the pathway for certain occupations only and got rid of it for other occupations completely. And that list of occupations for which that pathway still exists, uh, which is which used to be available after working for your employer for th two years, and now that's increased to three. Uh, so that pathway is still there, but only for certain people. And that's really obviously um, uh, contributing to the uh, uncertainty that you talk about because a lot of people who get offers of employment from uh, Australian employers, they come in on, on those work visas to work in Australia. And um, I come across many of them who 
actually do not realize that they don't have a pathway, at least not through that employer and not through that employment um, to permanent residence in Australia until they're already in the country. And that's obviously too late for them to be doing any planning. And there's a lot of um, frustration when they finally find out. Uh, I'm not saying this is for everyone, but uh, but it's uh, I've certainly encountered it as um, enough number of times to know that it is an issue. Right. So there is a lack of awareness and probably enough information that is going to migrants before coming to this country. There certainly is. Oh, oh, look, fair point, fair point. So according to the to MIPAX, I don't know if you've heard of it. It's called the Migration Integration Policy Index 2020. Two of the factors determining positive migrant integration is, in fact, political participation and anti-discrimination. Now, psychologically, it really played into my head, not knowing whether or not I was going to be able to settle permanently in Australia. So, you know, while I was on a temporary visa. So it was really hard for me to be motivated to want to learn about Australian politics because you just don't know, you know, why am I putting in all this effort? I don't even know whether I'm going to be living in this country. You've spent so much time helping people with their visas. Can you shed some light into what you think have been the barriers to political participation? Um, look, you're quite right. Um, a lot of people come to Australia, particularly these days, not knowing whether they're going to be here permanently. Uh, and even if they have a pathway and they somehow um, are able to uh, get to that stage where they become permanent residents of Australia, uh, they um, are very limited in terms of what they can do from a political perspective. You don't have voting rights as a, as a permanent resident in Australia, in contrast to New Zealand, for example, right next door, uh, where in New Zealand, um, permanent residents are able to vote after a certain period of residence in the country. Uh, so you don't have that in Australia. And, um, and uh, so you have a situation where um, you have a very, uh, very, very few political rights until such time as you become a citizen, and that can be down, uh, way down the track for for some for some people. Once you become a citizen, you find that you actually have compulsory voting in Australia. You have no idea who to vote for because no, you've never really looked into it. By <laughs> suddenly overnight, you've got to like learn everything there is to learn exactly. about all the parties, and and, and and then and then realize, oh sh oh crap, where do my values align? You know, what's the right way to vote? Oh my god! And where do you? <laughs> find really that information uh, really that's the question isn't it i mean there's no there's no sort of support or um uh, provided to to new migrants there's no uh, civics education that's available uh, for example just to give an example the department of immigration uh, makes uh, english language um, uh, tuition available to new migrants who need it for a period of time after they've um, uh, they've become permanent residents in australia but there's no similar uh, sort of uh, support for uh, for civics education, and that includes, of course, to understand the, the political landscape, how voting works, uh, what are my rights, um, what are the political parties, what do they stand for, um, uh, what are my obligations as a citizen. Uh, so uh, there's there's uh, very limited information out there with regard to these uh, these sorts of things. Okay, so you sort of lightly touched on my next question. <laughs> Which is, you know, of course, you know, like how you said, once migrants get their citizenship, then they're subject to compulsory voting. Uh, you sort of mentioned, oh, so I was going to ask you if you saw any issues with that, and clearly you touched upon, 
you know, them being not knowing how to vote, where to vote, <laughs> and, you know, and then there being absence of civics and political education for new citizens. Like you did mention that, for instance, New Zealand allows permanent residents to vote after some time. What happens there, just, just as a comparison, do they get some sort of education, civics education, in order to... Um... No, I'm not aware of any that's available there either. So some of mm. the same, uh, some of the same problems you you would encounter there as well. I mm. guess um, some of the barriers to entry in New Zealand uh, perhaps are not as um, as entrenched as they are in Australia. That could be mm -hmm. one of the differences. Yes, accessing that uh, that information about um, the political landscape, obligations, rights, political parties, platforms, and things like that, th th those same issues will be there in New Zealand as well. But one important distinction between Australia and New Zealand would be that the um, electoral system in New Zealand is, um, is quite uh, simple to understand and very intuitive in many ways. Um, it's a proportional, it's a type of proportional uh, representation uh, where people have two votes, one for a party and one for their uh, representative in the electorate that they're, um, they're located in. Uh, whereas in Australia, the, um, the electoral system is so complicated and there are actually two different electoral systems that, um, uh, that, that are used, one for the House of Representatives and, and a completely different one for the Senate. And, um, and many Australians who have been born and raised in Australia don't, don't fully understand it. Um, I remember, um, you know, soon after becoming a citizen, taking a greater interest in, uh, in all things political um, and looking deeper into the, the electoral system at that time. Uh, I remember asking certain questions as to, you know, how does it work? What, what if I, I rank from, you know, one to seven and, and, and for, for the Senate, I only do, you know, one to five. What's the difference and what are the implications and things like that? And most people just had no idea. And, um, and, and people who did venture a, um, a response uh you, you, you it seemed that you were getting a different response depending on who who you asked i'm very curious anka who did you approach to find out like you asked you said you asked some people this question who who did you ask because um, i think most people wouldn't even know who to ask that, that is that is true um look um i took the opportunity to speak to to people who um i met um you know when the topic came up of course because it's a funny question to ask out of you know uh, just like that, when you haven't really been talking about politics or voting or anything like that, but um, the occasion did present itself on a on a number of um, uh, on a number of instances, and I did I did raise it with uh, you know people who've been born and raised in Australia, um, and yeah, uh, it was very interesting that I um, you know two or three different people that I asked the same question to, and I got I got different answers, so I wasn't really sure. I had to go back to the drawing board and do my own research, and I'm still not hundred <laughs> percent. I think I think see that's the purpose of the show, right? Because the problem is not everyone understands that perfectly, um, and you know, and and in my own experience as a migrant, what I used to do, and I thought that was a great way, because like you, I I talk to Australians, they'd all give me different answers. Some clearly didn't have a clue. They'd be like, "Oh, that's what I think, anyways." You know, I'm not sure myself, mm -hmm. <laughs> and and then they're like, "What's the point? Nothing will change if you vote." You know, so you know they give me that kind of answers. But so what I did was actually join political parties. I've joined different political parties, you know, in my journey here in Australia. What I've been here 15 years. Mm. to try and understand because i thought oh if i join a political party they'll teach me mm. 
They don't. No, no, it doesn't work like that. They, they basically wanted me. So they were like, they were really happy that I joined. Obviously, they love people joining, becoming members, whatnot. But yeah. all they wanted, they wanted to put me to work. Can you do this? Can you volunteer? You know, can you do that? But nobody wants to take the time to, to tell you what's what beyond volunteering. And I think that's a people of color issue because they just see, oh, Maybe they won't even be permanent in this country. So they're great volunteers mm. and they don't even teach you how to, how to climb up the political ladder, you know, or you, do you want to do more in this political party? Here's, here's how even the internal political system, nobody teaches you. <laughs> something so simple as something so simple mm. as um, as discussing the actual platform of the party so that you have some knowledge when people ask you oh, I'm a member of X party and and they ask you well what's your position on I don't know voluntary euthanasia for example and and you have no idea because th that's that question has never really come up before uh, so yeah look uh, my um, limited exposure to the way political parties work, um, uh, what I have seen in Australia so far is firstly, the, the level of political participation in the, in, in the form of membership of a political party is actually very low in Australia uh, compared, uh, compared to many other countries around the world. Uh, and this is this is even um, uh, this is also the case for the so-called two major parties. Um, you know, when you have a party, when you have established parties like that going back, you know, many decades, um, really membership should be in the millions. <laughs> it's, it's, it's actually very, very low. So smaller parties, of course, um, are suffer as well, because, uh, because people sort of, you know, don't know. And it's funny, because the major party knows, parties know, like, that it's hard to get memberships, you know, people to become members and yet they've just recently passed this new rule requiring minor parties to meet thousand initially it was 500 now they want them to meet the 1500 membership you yeah. know remember and i thought <laughs> and some of them have met just purely out of outrage people were so outraged that they they signed up to be members of small parties but you know is that meaningful participation i don't know <laughs> well on the flip side on the flip side really uh, 1500 is such a small number for a country of 26 million that it really should be should not even be a barrier but the way it was done the way the two major parties got together to put this in place as if to block smaller parties from becoming uh, bigger players uh, that's what didn't sit well with me the way it was done not not that not the, the 1500 mark because really the 1500 mark any self-respecting party really should have that and a lot more <laughs> members anyway <laughs> that is a good point yes but do the major parties have that kind of numbers I don't know. I haven't well, looked into it. <laughs> well, neither have I. But actually, those numbers are secret. They don't release them. Um, I know for a fact that Clive Palmer doesn't. Oh, I wouldn't be surprised. But even the, the major parties <laughs> certainly guard their membership numbers as a massive secret and don't like to talk about it. So I wonder yeah. why. <laughs> Probably because they haven't caught the numbers themselves. That's exactly right. <laughs> and, and, you, and I'm talking about Clive Palmer. The only reason why he didn't need to meet the 1,500 requirement because he managed to get Craig Kelly, who's That's a right. member of parliament, in, in as part of his team. So now he's met, you know, he's free to run. For now. And, you know. It's it's incredible. Yeah. But, you know, speaking about all these minor parties and major parties, one of the topic, um, heated topic of discussions in recent time was was the topic of diversity. So 
as a person of color, I tend to look at before joining, forget political parties, any organization. I'm like, are there people like me in there? You know, before joining, because otherwise, you know, it puts me in a very awkward position. Um, if you don't see people like you in there, um, <laughs> what are, what is your opinion on the state of the, you know state of diversity in political parties? And you can comment on the minor and the major part, minor parties as well. Um, not all of them are diverse. No, look, um, the issue of diversity is um, is obviously not just in the political arena in, in Australia. It's right across the board um, in um, public institutions, private institutions, uh, senior management, universities, councils, everywhere. Mm. And if you look mm. at the, the upper echelons of all of those institutions, uh, you'll see that um, uh, Anglo-Australians are disproportionately represented and, and male Anglo-Australians more so. So um, as you go down the ladder of, um, you know, diversity, uh, you, you see uh, the, um, the level of representation drops to uh, basically negligible numbers, uh, particularly when it comes to newer Australians and Australians of, um, of minority backgrounds, including, of course, Indigenous Australians. So yes. we see the same thing in politics. We see the same thing, with, whether it's a major party or a minor party, uh, the same thing is there. Um, of course, there is an additional um, entry uh, barrier to entry at the federal level, uh, which is Section 44 of the Constitution, which says that if you are a dual or multiple citizen, uh, mm. you cannot uh, be nominated for or be elected to federal parliament. So that's for, for me, that's very interesting because I keep hearing arguments from from both sides, right? The for and against. What What about you? Are you for uh, people renouncing their country a bit if they want to run here in Australia? Like, how does? What do you think about that? Absolutely not. Um, I think uh, citizenship is a very um, deep and valuable um, and um, and significant uh, tie, and it's not something to be renounced uh, willy nilly. Um, not for political. Um, expediency, not for um, promise of uh, a membership of parliament or, or, or office or ministry or, or anything, um, especially, mm. um, I mean, imagine if if an Australian went and settled in the UK and, um, and they said, oh, well, well, we'll make you an MP, but you have to renounce your Australian citizenship. I mean, would they just as readily be um, prepared to, to renounce their Australian citizenship? And if, and if, assuming if they were, you know what, what? What would that make you think about that person? I mean, if, if citizenship means so little to them that they can get rid of it so easily for the isn't that what Pauline Hanson said famously that she was going to go and settle in the UK because you know and I I think she said something along those lines or she was going to give up on Australia. Well, I don't know. I don't know if she actually did her research before saying that because in in the UK, strangely enough, uh, an Australian. Um, once, once the, an Australian has lived there for a particular period of time, even if they have no uh, permanent residence in the UK, you can actually mm. get on the electoral roll and, and vote. Uh, so right. that's, that's before even becoming a permanent resident or citizen uh, of, um, or, or a British citizen. And, and any uh, British citizen who's a dual or multiple citizen is able to be elected to parliament and even serve as prime minister in the UK. So very different. Australia stands alone in the Western world in, in having this, um, this this restriction on uh, dual citizens. What's what's the thinking there? Well, the, 
obviously the uh, constitution dates from 1901. So the world was a very mm. different place then. And in fact, Australian citizenship didn't even exist back then um, and didn't exist until uh, 1948, right? Mm. So um, uh, so I guess the, the reason why they put it in was uh, that, uh, that it would only be uh, for the subjects of the British Empire as it was at the time and, and no one mm. else. Uh, obviously, times have changed, but the structural issue that we have in Australia mm. is to change the constitution is such an onerous thing uh, that mm. requires uh, basically a referendum and the two-thirds majority in all of the states and territories, as well as uh, the uh, wider Australia, uh, that that it's uh, something like that is a monumental task uh, with mm. very, very little political payoff. Uh, so... Um, I can't see any of the the major parties actually taking it on as a as a cause, even though they have been uh, affected by it in the past. Um, That's right. The, the the way they've resolved that is to put pressure on their uh, on their members to to let go of their other citizenships. But I think that's wholly inappropriate. Mm, and and you know it is a privilege. I, I I guess I've at least in Singapore that's what has been said uh, where I'm from. It's a privilege. Citizenship is a privilege. It's not a right. Absolutely. Um, Only citizenship so, by birth is a right. Citizenship, um, uh, citizenship by conferral is a privilege. And you know, even there, uh, do we do we as citizens here in Australia even have any rights? Because the constitution doesn't really talk about that, does it? What our rights are as citizens. No, that's right, because the Australian constitution is not what we call a codified constitution. So it, it's not one that sets out rights mm. um, and obligations of um, citizens and um, and the, um, the fundamental rights that uh, the state uh, should respect and uphold uh, in respect of the of the citizenry. So. Um, that's uh, that has never been built into the constitution. Our constitution is effectively a, um, a glorified manual for to set out mm. the relationship between the Commonwealth and the constituent states. Um, mm. What we really need in Australia is a is a uh, is a comprehensive bill of rights that sets out those uh, those rights and responsibilities, so that mm. everyone knows exactly uh, what their um, what their rights are and where um, where the line is drawn with regard to uh, with regard to um, the, the state in interference on those rights yeah and you know obviously it created a big controversy because you have a lot of australians stuck overseas that can't seem to exert their rights as citizens mm. to come home that's um, that's and, correct and i i think that's incredible because singapore for instance managed to bring all its singaporean citizens back home because of the fact that they are citizens and we have to bring them back home you know that's right they, they they didn't entertain any other alternative for them. That's right. Um, and Singapore never yeah. had, throughout the pandemic, Singapore never had uh, entry bans mm. for its own citizens. It, it didn't yeah. have, obviously, entry bans for uh, uh, work permit holders and, and the like, mm. but never for its own citizens. So Australia, again, on that on that front, stood alone in the world um, in implementing uh, tra travel bans that impacted directly on its citizens. Yeah, and so if you're a migrant, especially when you when you hear about these things, that creates a sense of, I guess it's a psychological impact. I would I would think that you're never really fully integrated. You're no. you're never fully able to exert your rights. So perhaps why am I putting in all this effort in political participation? Because you know, not you we raised quite a number of issues. A Nobody, nobody's helping me out to try and understand the system. 
<laughs> number one <laughs> everyone tells me different things political parties don't want to help me um i don't see many people like me in in the political sphere anyways mm. <laughs> so uh if i talk to them about my issues those who are not people of color they don't understand they can't relate three and then the last one you said you know as for the constitution you don't really have any citizenship rights anyways so yeah, that that's exactly why i mean now that mm. we have become part of uh, this society as um, mm. you know migrants once ourselves and and mm. now as australians it is our responsibility to to talk about uh, these um these issues of importance not just to new australians but to all australians and to mm. um to do what we can to make uh to make things better and uh to make australia a um a better place to live for everybody well then this then brings me to my final question anka what can new australians and also the government do in order to better uh to to better migrant get migrants to integrate better into australian society via uh political participation well look it's it's interesting um and and similar issues have have been encountered in in workforce participation in the past for instance uh, you mm -hmm. know um governments have instituted um in various parts of the world mm -hmm. um requirements for employers to uh, to have a certain percentage of their workforce if they're employing over a certain number of people from um, uh, possibly you know people with uh, criminal convictions and things like that or or even mm -hmm. instituting quotas for um, uh, for minorities and, um, and gender-based quotas and things like that look mm -hmm. it's um it's very important i think i think it's a it's a two-way relationship um there's obviously uh uh, an onus on new Australians, new migrants, to to get to know the country that they are um, uh, they're wanting to make their homes in. It's very mm. important. A lot of people come to Australia and they uh, they know very little about how this country actually works, mm. and, um, and what you get in the media and um, what you get in promotional material, and even what you hear from. Um, professionals who who specialize in assisting people to come to Australia so for yeah. example what you hear from education agents and even some immigration professionals from time to time mm -hmm. may be a very one-sided view of how things actually are so it's very important that people do their own research into what sort of what sort of one-sided view do they tend to give well, they tend to, of course, uh, focus on, for example, if you're an education agent, you might focus on, you know, how a particular university is so great and uh, and mm. that you would have a, a piece of paper that has a lot of standing in the world and things like mm. that. And, you know, uh, uh, I don't know, you could you could say, for example, if you come to Australia on a uh, on a student visa as a master's student, you have full work rights, uh, you, mm. can, you can work, uh, earn, earn a lot of money. This is a country where uh, which yeah. has the, the highest uh, sort of minimum wage in the world and you'll be able to earn a lot of money as well as get yeah. really high quality education so they talk about all of these good things and these, these none of these things and none of this is um incorrect as such but what about the the flip side of it you know the the difficulty to integrate the cost of living um <laughs> uh, the potentially uh, potentially the exploitation that takes place yeah. uh at the in the job market so so many things and uh, why would they why? i'm sorry but you know you've helped a lot of international people and you wouldn't tell them that would you 
well, <laughs> let me put it this way. If they ask me, if they are, I mean, it's not my, the, the thing is people, people hire me for a certain, um, for something uh, specific, yeah. which is to help yeah. them with their visa applications. So yeah. I, I can't then uh, put aside <laughs> another couple of hours to t- tell them all about Australia. But if they ask me specific questions yeah. about how things are, I will always give them an honest answer, of course. Mm. But, but I can only assist them to the extent that they hire me uh, for my services. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Oh, fair Otherwise, I would be a charity, not not a business. <laughs> yeah, I guess I guess what's what's missing is it's very short term focus. They sh- they focus on the short term benefits of like coming here, getting an education, but then they don't talk about long term. As in, like you know, if you, well, the government sort of says if you're here on a student visa, they sort of ask you, do you plan on living in Australia? And mm. if you say yes, they don't give you the student visa. That's right. Anyway. That's right. <laughs> so it's. You know what? That's incredible because the moment you ask that question, how can psychologically, like I've been an international student, how can I psychologically think about wanting to integrate? Mm. No, that's correct. Um, and and if you know that that's the expectation from day one, that you get your education and you leave. Leave, um, yeah. Uh, look, it, again, that's, uh, that's something that they put in about 10 years ago um, mm. uh, through what they call the genuine temporary entrance requirement for students. Um, there is the on 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 one hand, it's um uh, obviously you want people who genuinely want to study coming into Australia, but on the other hand, you, you don't want to put people in a situation where they have to they feel they have to misrepresent their situation to get a to get a visa. I don't I don't think putting people in that situation is is good for either side. Yeah. Yeah, but that's you know I I personally don't know what what we need to do to to change that. <laughs> no. Would a would a would a you know would a uh, petition be enough? Do do does the immigration office pr- do consultation? <laughs> they do, they do. But Community. this is this is something they feel quite strongly about. So you know, it's 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 mm. obviously come up in the past. Uh, in mm. um, uh, in uh, you know when I was. Um, when I was president of the Migration Institute of Australia in Victoria and Tasmania, we used to have meetings with the department on a quarterly basis, and mm. uh, and you know it was it was um, uh, one of those things that we would raise with them from time to time. But it's it's something they feel very strongly about, and and they mm. uh, it's not something that they are prepared to to negotiate on. So I guess it's just a uh, it's just mm. something that people need to navigate until they get to a point where they are in a position to to stay so- or go. So here's my my dilemma then for new new entrants into Australia that are really interested they want to integrate they want to form a life here I'm at a loss what do I tell them like here's how you can do it here's how you can participate in in the political system you know, mm. what can I tell them where can they at the moment I know like we talked we lightly touched on how there isn't really a civic or sort of political education thing provided for new citizens or migrants into this country. So in the meantime, what what else can they do um, to understand the system in which they're they're entering? Well, look, I mean, firstly, they need to take an interest, I guess, because if you don't take an interest, um, even if somebody wanted to give that information to you, you probably mm. wouldn't be very receptive to it in the first place. So mm. you need to take an interest. You need to want to know. Um, mm. But in terms of who can help them and how, I guess there's a gap there for civil society to fill. Um, mm. You know, perhaps if somebody could come up with a with a project that has a very clear 
sort of objectives and quantifiable um, metrics to uh, to get results um, and to teach uh, or, or to offer um, information or training to new arrivals on uh, the mm. political system of Australia, the electoral system, the parties, their obligations, their rights uh, as citizens. Um, Who is most qualified to give that information, you think? Look, uh, the skills would... Um, I guess uh, the skills needed to present material of that sort um, mm. could be anyone with good uh, sort of presentation skills because mm. those skills are very transferable. The, the key really is to come up with the, with the material that's strong enough. So that's the, yeah. thing, the, the and, and the material could be developed. So the material can be, doesn't necessarily have to be developed by the same people who will do the presenting. So the, the, the people who would be doing the, uh, pre preparing the material could be people who have been involved in politics and, um, and mm. who, have, um, who have had exposure to the system uh, closely themselves. And, mm. then, and then the presentation could be by, by anyone who has those. Is, that, is there a danger that they would present, provide the information in such a way that is more favorable to, to become members of one party over the, the other? Well, you would have to have some quality control, obviously, yeah. to make sure that it's, uh, it's sufficiently um, neutral. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Anka, that was, you know, that's all we have time for today. Obviously, okay. there is so much more. Well, we, could, we could go the whole day, couldn't we? <laughs> I mean, just just talking about the, the, the restrictions and the conditions, visa conditions that sort of create this this psychological effect of not, you know how you said, oh, you need to take an interest in politics, but then well, how? <laughs> Mm. You're telling me that you don't want me in this country. What, how do you want me to be interested mm. in something it's a, that... It's a journey. It doesn't happen overnight. It's a, it's a long no. journey. And for me, it's taken, what, nearly 15 years. Mm. It's so, a long journey. It is. Not, not everyone has that level of endurance. No, no, you're quite right. You are quite right about so, that. So, look, it is a journey. And Anka, thank you so much for your time. And I certainly learned a lot. I'm going to look up Section 44 of the Constitution. I've got this. <laughs> I, got, I bought a book. I'm going to go flip the pages and find that Section 44, wherever that is. I can't find it right now. That's all right. <laughs> have a look and we'll have another chat about it later. Yeah, absolutely. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to hit subscribe. Allies in Politics podcast is part of the larger Allies in Colour organisation, where we advance people of colour in jobs, business and politics. Follow us on Twitter at Allies in Colour. And also, don't forget to join our Facebook group with the same name. Until next time. <laughs>